Welcome to Because You Need to Know. I'm Edwin K. Morse, President and Founder of Pioneer Knowledge Services. This series is your digital resource of valuable conversations with nonprofit and knowledge management enthusiasts from across industries and from around the globe. Hi, my name is Donald Clark, and, and although I'm uh, speaking today from Brighton and the south coast of England, you can probably tell already that I have a Scottish accent, which is where I'm from originally. Uh, I was asked what uh, the most interesting thing near me is geographically, and I think it's Gatwick Airport, since I've done a lot of traveling in my life all around the globe, giving talks at conferences, but also in business, uh, you know, Far East, US, uh, Russia, all across Africa and so on. I really like working in AI. That's for the last four or five years, I've done nothing but work in this artificial intelligence field. My most fantastic job or work experience was really building a company from scratch, which I did when I was younger and then floated that on the stock market, it allowed me to retire a bit early, which is always nice. So I work in this field for AI, specifically its application in learning and knowledge. Uh, I've written a book on the subject, AI for Learning, by that on Amazon. I can give you a code for a discount if you want. I was asked what the last book I was read, and it was Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, which was an absolutely astounding read. Uh, I highly recommend it. I think it's possibly the best American uh, novel I've ever read. Uh, a, a really amazing piece of literature, but there we are. I've just finished a second book on learning experience design uh, that will be published in, in November. The sort of things that I was asking some of my hobbies, you know, what are the things I read about or get excited about are, are, are a bit sort of nerdish, really. But I really like history, Anglo-Saxon history, Egyptology. I've been to Egypt you know, 20, 25 times. I've worked for about 36, 37 years in this tech area and tech businesses. Uh, four or five, the last four or five, really purely in AI. I have a small AI company. I've invested in two others, director of some companies. If you ask me who my mentor was, I have a very clear answer, and that is absolutely no one. I've, I've never joined the scouts or any <laughs> clubs. I studiously avoid uh, mentoring or joining groups. And I'm sort of, you know, I'm getting on a bit. I'm not a young man, but I, it's held me in good stead. I, you know, it's just, it avoids groupthink. I think as soon as you get into those, you know, those trade associations and all that stuff, you start thinking like them. And that, that's death to me. I think that's led to most of the, my success in life and business, certainly not listening to people who, who very often want to give you advice, of course. That reminds me of an old Groucho, if you know the actor Groucho Marx quote that said, I would never join a club that would have me as a member. Well, you know, if I had a tattoo, that would be it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i love my dog you know i've really i, I had my first dog two and a half years ago it's called doug i'll tell you it's been a revelation to me uh you know i've never had a dog before absolutely adore my dog walking my dog it's sort of you know he's my buddy uh, a great deal of uh, joy from that uh, when am i inspired really when i walk and write you know i, I walk a lot and I, I like Nietzsche, you know, you, you thought that you, all great ideas come from uh, that uh, perambulation, as it were. And I, I, I agree with that. How do I stay connected with people? I suppose with technology and drinking in bars. <laughs> I like the pub. You know, I'm a sucker for a pint of beer. So, uh, you know, they've been the, my two mainstays in terms of communal living, I suppose. Sure. And Well, let me know if you need some help with that. I'll be right there. Yeah, exactly. They're always willing companions on that one. If I was stranded on, on an island, my top three must have 
So when I answered this question, it was reminded of Ricky Gervais. I'll explain why. I put my top three halves are, well, my wife, my dog, and one of my twins, if I only had three things to take. And that was a Ricky Gervais thing. He, when he was asked by journalists what would be the only thing he would grab when he ran out of a burning, his burning house, he said, jokingly, one of my twins. And it got repeated thereafter by the press. <laughs> he doesn't even have kids. He doesn't even have twins. But it was a good line. So I thought I'd uh, pop that in at the end. Yeah. So uh, that's really me. That's who I am. That's fabulous. Thank you for that. Hey, Weedy, you want to give me a break here? We're almost done. I know. It's been a long day. Why don't you yeah, I love a dog. Yeah. <laughs> this is a Wheaton Terrier. Sounds just like mine. I have a schnauzer. They're, they're really barky. <laughs> yeah. He does pretty well. What was the first piece of technology that got you excited those those many years ago that got you even into looking at technology? Ah, good question. Well, many, many years ago, I, I studied at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, you know, when I was 19, 20. And uh, I was doing a degree in philosophy, which was quite an esoteric humanities subject. But that college was quite advanced and they had a very early IBM mainframe. The, the programming language basic was written there. And they gave every student, every student on campus had four or five hours on it. And I was doing a course in what's called philosophical logic. And uh, I went on and did a little bit, a tiny little bit of programming. Spent most of the time playing battleships with another guy on it, <laughs> <laughs> as, as you did. And that really was my introduction to computing. I had done a little bit back, back at the ranch at school. but And then I came back and bought a Commodore 64, changed my life. Home computer, that's what got me into all of this. Yeah, so that was the first. To go from that first taste of what digital could be, tell me what was the spur that kept that trajectory going in your career? Well, really, initially it was by accident. When I was young, I, I spent quite a bit of time traveling, and I, I went to the Soviet Union, which was the Soviet Union, several times in that short period. At that time, the, there was no English in any of the subways and so on. So I, I did a course in Russian. And Russian is quite a difficult language to master because you have to learn the Cyrillic alphabet for, for a start. My very first encounter with computers, something I did myself in my Commodore 64, was to teach myself. I'd, I wrote a program teaching myself the Cyrillic alphabet and some basic Russian vocabulary. It sort of struck me, wow, this is amazing. You know, we can actually use computers to do things human beings do, teachers do. So that set me really, it was a complete accident. I did it just, you know, for fun. And then I got more and more interested in that, came down to London, eventually ended up starting a business with two guys in Brighton and hey, presto, that was my life. So, you know, like a lot of people, design rather than, it wasn't accident rather than design. It, it, it was designed up here, right? I mean, the spark was, well, geez, I wonder if I could teach myself right? You created something that was a learning product of probably the, one of the first learning products out there. Yeah. Right. For yourself. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it was the first selfish reason. You're like trying to help yourself. You're like, Oh, yeah, I'm just yeah. going to. And well, this is the key thing. Another, another thing that struck me at Dartmouth, if you may not know, but the modern era of artificial intelligence started at Dartmouth in 1956, which happens to be the year of my birth. And also the year that Elvis was launched. <laughs> <laughs> it gave us rock and roll as well. So. I, I was aware of that when I was there as well. And uh, some years later, I then, re I had always followed the, uh, you know, the ups and downs of AI. And then when it suddenly exploded, I was ready to rock and roll with that in business terms. And so that became quite important. I guess. But the, yeah. there's a lesson in the Russian thing is you immediately recognize that what computers give you is scale, you know? And it was if I produce a program for teaching somebody Russian, you can just, you know, multiply it a million times. Now, it wasn't little cassette discs and all sorts of weird storage devices way back then, but 
now we have distribution on the internet and AI. And of course, this indeed is what changes the whole notion of, uh, of knowledge management uh, and knowledge itself, because AI is defining how knowledge is distributed, mediated. AI changes everything in knowledge. It changes how it's created even. So AI does literally change everything in this, in this, uh, in this area of human endeavor. What's the biggest constraint? Well, the biggest constraint is always culture, of course, and uh, the sort of negativity and bias around holding us back, you know, because we, you know, Daniel Kahneman got the Nobel Prize for, for identifying the 50 to 100 sort of implicit biases, almost innate biases we have. They're very difficult to dislodge. But human beings are naturally distrustful of the new, quite rightly in a way, you know, that, uh, you know that's uh, it's why we've evolved to be the dominant species in a way, you know, we're careful. Uh, but the culture within companies, especially in the area I've been working in, and you know, getting AI into, let's say, training in large companies or education, they are particularly resistant to change. But of course, if your salary depends upon it, you're going to be resistant to the scaling. And that's understandable. That's not to blame people in any way. But it's cultural inertia. That's the, that's the big resistance that one faces. Just, it's basically just people. People are the problem. People, people, yeah, no, yeah. People, people are people, you know. The and again, it's it's important not to um, impose some sort of ethical binary of whether that's good or bad on this. People are just people. We have evolved brains. We've evolved. We've evolved these biases for good reasons, you know, to be slightly skeptical, nervous, yeah, slightly yeah. fearful. So we should pay attention to those as well, not regard. I I understand that paradigm in which the the culture is the slowest uptake to change in in some form or fashion and it's like you say you know it's really it's just that response reaction kind of thing but in an organization that you're steering in an organization that you're leading that gives you the amplification or the the rudder the control of the rudder of what direction you're going now one thing that we've wanted to bring up is the the marriage between knowledge management and artificial intelligence and learning key ingredient right so the learning is really the focus of where you're at now correct yes so can you explain a little bit about what it is you're bringing to the table in the art of learning? Okay. Well, so AI changes everything in terms of, you know, it mediates all your social media. If you watch Netflix or any streaming service, it was mediated by AI. If you buy something on Amazon, it's mediated by AI. You use Google all the time. That is pure AI. So AI is absolutely everywhere. You know, Uber, Deliveroo, Just Eats, anything. You know, everything we do in life now is mediated by AI, except learning. That's a peculiar one. And yet we spend, you know, the first, uh, you know, 13 to 20 years of our life in that sort of formal learning environment. It's massively expensive and inefficient, takes far too long. And therefore, it's the one area that's sort of right for change. You know, it's the one area where we can really benefit from AI because what AI promises is this sort of personalization that we see in uh, these other areas, you know. But AI, in a sense, mediates all knowledge now. This is the important thing to remember. So, you know, I have a, an A-L-E-X-A in my room. I won't say her word or she'll spring into action. So AI has allowed us to interact with knowledge through voice, through Google Assistant, Siri, and uh, of course, Amazon. We have chatbots, which are all AI-driven. Uh, you know, it's another way of interacting with knowledge. Uh, but we search for knowledge, of course, almost invariably using AI through Google or uh, also a Google type search, but differently on YouTube. 
So all of these things allow us to learn and acquire and access huge amounts of knowledge. Knowledge is at our fingertips for the first time in the history of our species. But AI goes a lot further than this because we also have formal learning where AI can create good content. I've been involved in projects where you just give me a PowerPoint or a document or a video even, and we, we use AI to grab the transcript of the video or the document and we use a thing called entity analysis and natural language processing technique to create online learning. And it also creates open input questions. So if I say to you, you know, you, you know what are the three main reasons behind uh, the rush for Scottish independence politically? And you have to type them in. I can then semantically interpret your answer, your open input answer using AI. So there are all sorts of individual pieces of AI that are helping in the learning task. And that's the area I'm primarily involved in at the moment. What you're saying is, is that you're enabling the learner to interact with the AI system, regardless of the content source. The AI system is what is consuming, understanding, and or providing results to that yeah. learner. But this is around learning. So what you're saying is I give you a document that I created for knowledge management, and then you consume that. We can, on the fly, create a knowledge product that's ready to go? Yeah, that's right. It can, you know, it would identify the learning points and then create questions automatically around those learning points to make sure that you're getting, you know, making some effort cognitive effort, which is what learning is all about. You really have to think about these things if you're going to learn as opposed to just reading them, let's say. And so that's exactly what that type of product does. And another, there are several different things in learning that can be applied across the learning journey. Uh, one is to create content like that for basic knowledge, you know, the, the sort of base, baseline stuff you need before you go on and acquire deeper knowledge or indeed skills. But if we move across into highly personalized adaptive learning systems, so I was involved with one of those for four or five years. ASU popped a million dollars into it. It was so successful there. Uh, it's now been bought by another very famous university. The deal is just going through, so I, I can't really mention who that is. It's a bit like creating knowledge objects in a network. It's no longer a linear course. So you remember doing math at school. You do one thing followed by another all the way through. This is like a network. Mm -hmm. And different learners vector through that network depending on how quickly they progress or don't progress. Sure. And the AI is a bit like the GPS or sat-nav in your car. So if you're driving you know, from Boston to New York and you take a wrong turn off the highway, your GPS gets you back on course again, literally on course. That's what these systems do. They, they know who you are. They use a mixture of personalized and aggregated data from all learners who have done that course in the past and they make sure that it stays you on course this is really important in subjects like maths where most people fail of course they fall off they go off course and never get back on the right road again. right and that happens to almost everyone so what use case is this been proven to be a success what industry the first project I was involved in was for a big travel company that was put on hold, of course, during this pre-COVID. So then we did 50 hours of learning. They, they had all these kids who were working with them who had been travel agents out on with people on cruises and holidays, you know, all over Europe and the US and so on. It's a very large, the largest company in Europe. But they had a problem. Suddenly the market shifted. People like me and you, no doubt, were thinking about no longer going to clubbing in Ibiza or whatever. We were thinking about going on a cruise or whatever. But these young kids 
had no real geography. They don't teach geography in the way they used to teach geography, you know, like what is the capital of Italy or whatever. <laughs> so we had this massive training task for all these young people who had to go into travel agents, call centers, all sorts of things on the knowledge, really geographic knowledge, what currency is used there, what's the airport codes and so on. Now, we, what we did was we got, you know, basic stuff from an atlas and we put it through this AI engine. We, we produced 50 hours of learning on the whole world. And it took just, it was a matter of days rather than months. And it was at about 10% of the cost. They had got three other quotes at half a million, and we did it for 50,000. And that was very successful when launched across the company, uh, initially in one group, and then it spread throughout the whole company. So that was the first big use. We won a whole clutch of awards for that because it, it was a really it was a well-documented case in terms of return on investment, saving money, but also, more importantly, tracking of sales. In other words, if somebody had done that course on the Mediterranean, did it lead to an actual sale of cruises on the Mediterranean? And you could correlate the data. This is why data is so important now in this world, or in business generally. We have AI, but of course we have data. I think that's worth exploring because if you're, if you're looking at knowledge per se and call that data, there's no doubt in my mind now that you're not really running an organization if you're not data sensitive or starting to be data led in this day and age because all your competitors are moving in that direction. In the construction of the learning, so I've got some background working with instructional designers, building products for the military intelligence field for the U.S. Army, and I was part of a culture shift at that time in early 2000s where the U.S. Army Intelligence Command decided to retrofit how they train by getting rid of the sage on the stage yeah. where you had to be a subject matter expert to even get up there to yeah. talk about anything to having instructional designers come in, look at all the content, learning objectives, all that sort of thing, and then building actual products for learning versus yeah. a slide deck of monotonous, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It was a painful yeah. change. There was a lot of pushback. It really created a paradigm of shift oh, yeah. to a wholly different place. Does this AI, is this going to be available to the average Joe well, or just deep pocket outfits? First of all, you know, that, that paradigm shift towards online learning that took that actually took place in the sort of 70s, 80s where these home computers came in. You know, we've then shifted some of the training and learning onto, onto computers. And then, of course, along comes the internet. That's another big boost in terms of training. Online learning has been around for now, you know, 20-odd years because of that. But AI changes the game once again. So I, I remember giving a talk, actually. It was in Florida to a purely military audience, most of who were in uniform. There were 3,000 people in the room. And I opened my talk speaking Russian. <laughs> Going back to the story I told at the beginning. At the, at the end of a couple of sentences in Russian, I said, Does any, did anybody understand what I said there? And one lone guy at the back in a naval uniform stood up and he correctly translated it. And my point was, listen, we got, America won the Cold War, but they didn't win it by learning Russian <laughs> or having to know about it. And my point was, this was uh, around 2000, that you were about to go into the Gulf and you will not win that if you don't speak Arabic or understand the culture. This turned out to be quite prophetic. So we had tens of thousands of young kids who had never been out of the U.S. being landed in a foreign culture. And there was no real attempt to cope with that in the end, as we saw with Abu Ghraib and so on. So I think, you know, we have a chance here of accelerating the rate at which people learn and also the efficacy of that learning, its retention. And AI can certainly do that because it can personalize it. It can produce the stuff quickly. 
and we're seeing plenty of evidence of that now. And some there's a new kid on the block that's really worth discussing here as well, and that's what are called transformers. And uh, GPT-3 is the one that's caught everyone's attention. But just go into Google and type in GTP-3 and you'll see some. It's mind-blowing. So this is a piece of AI where you can just ask it a question like, you know, what were the major causes behind the Civil War in the US or whatever? And it comes out with a full essay. And it's a pretty good essay. You know, it does the job. Imagine having that at your fingertips now. So in the production of learning programs, for example, uh, so uh, we've been doing this for the We have access to GTP-3. Getting it was difficult, but we have it. Imagine uh, saying, on any task you want, we feed it a document and say, I want that document summarized. You know, that 10,000 words on, uh, you know, tactics, uh, reloading, or whatever it is, you know, and say, I want a summary in 200 words at level one and level two, and it will take seconds and produce it for me, literally in seconds. Uh, right, I want 10 questions on that so that people can get cognitively engaged. Press a button. So what you're saying is as though this is a, an accumulator, a analyzer, and a producer yeah. of content, but it it's limited to the source, wh wh whatever the source is. So okay. if, yeah. you've, if you've got stuff behind a publisher's warehouse door or anything that's copyrighted, what you're saying is in general, you can take a topic. Now, more specifically, given the constraints of access, if your intranet, your intra internal documentation is this piece where you want the learning. And while you were yeah. speaking, all I could think of was lessons learned. So instead of having the whole cumbersome mechanism of what most lessons learned teams look like, this could be the subtle way to create yeah. more and different and better and faster lessons learned, Absolutely. best practices. There's no limit to what this can do other than the constraints of the container it has access to. That's correct, Edwin. So GTP3, of course, this is the third version. I thought GTP2 was amazing. <laughs> and imagine what GTP10 <laughs> is going to like, look like. So GTP3 basically has all these parameters. So it has this huge corpus of knowledge, the whole of Wikipedia. You know, everything that's ever been published, just literally thousands and millions of pieces of text. It has all that in its memory. They train the algorithm using that corpus, what's called a corpus, which is a knowledge corpus. Hmm. Once that's trained up, it's then very sensitive to whatever I feed it hmm. because it brings all that to the hmm. table. It knows more than any human being in that sense. Now, it doesn't have logic and reason in the same level that we have, but it produces very passable output in terms of simplification questions. It can even produce computer code now. It's getting that good. The only missing link that I can think of as an old Intel analyst is validity. Who's gonna verify any of this content? Yeah, well, the QA check is always necessary. So AI, AI is a bit like an idiot savant. You know, <laughs> it, it's, it's really super smart on very narrow super, things. Right. <laughs> And I often quote the, the famous example, and this actually happened to me is, you know, uh, I have one of those robot vacuum cleaners that comes mm. out and sweeps up the whole of the ground floor of my house. And it has a brain, it maps, mathematically maps all the rooms, knows when it hits a stair, reverses. And so it's got, it's AI driven, it's called Roomba. And it's linked up to my it, my Alexa, so I just get it, you know, it's all robotic. Anyway, and, and so it does a great job, absolutely fantastic job, until my dog, whose name is Doug, comes in and does its business in the carpet. Then it comes in and <laughs> smears it 
<laughs> mathematically into every corner <laughs> because it doesn't know shit, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, this is the point, you know, that this is a non-knowing. So it's competence, it's competence without comprehension. You know, it might win, beat you at poker, go, chess, but it doesn't even mm. know it's won. But that doesn't mm. matter, you know, because it's the competence that we're after. To go back to your question, it was a good question, this, because you do need human checks on all of this because it can make it can make mistakes and not realize it's made a mistake right right you know it's by no means a, humans are very 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 good at this i can give you a good example in one of the first programs we ever did for nurses we did an allergy test program teaching nurses how to give you a little prick in your arm you know are you allergic to nuts right. or cats one of the things you do with young kids when you do this because it can be quite painful is get them to blow you know you, you say to the kid blow and then you prick their arm it's a distractor and when it came to the test it, the AI went off and found a link on Wikipedia to blow because it, it did that automatically as well as test them. But it went to the blow page, which was all about cocaine. <laughs> so, of course, that was <laughs> completely yep, inappropriate. Uh, that didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So we have human quality control. Mm. On the mm. other hand, it works the other way. On that travel program I mentioned to you, it came up. The original sort of source material contains some stuff about Southern Ireland. Now, I don't know if you know any Irish people, but they don't use the term Southern Ireland. They fought a 30-year war to avoid this. Oh, <laughs> and so the AI picked this up, of course, and said, no, no, the, you know, the, this is wrong, actually. What you should be calling it is Ireland or ERA, E-I-R-E. And so AI is pretty good at picking up folks, but it's not faultless. And therefore, human quality control is usually necessary in, somewhere in the loop. So how do you build a learning mechanism that involves this level of intensity without displacing a whole industry of education? Well, you don't really uh, <laughs> in the long, in the long term, in the short term, of course, yeah, you've got all that sure. cultural inertia. You, you have 1.7 trillion of federal debt on your higher education system. This is unsustainable, really. Yeah. Uh, COVID, yeah. COVID showed that it's un unsustainable. You have a very high percentage of graduates doing non-graduate jobs now. So it seems that to be more to do with signaling than anything else. Getting a degree these days is a sort of sorting mechanism. The truth of the matter is that you know, technology and AI has been eating away in the education and training space for some time now. So this is a massive, you know, many billions of dollars every year spent on corporate training using technology anyway. And that just goes up on a compound annual growth rate of somewhere between 10 and 20%, but it's getting faster and faster. And of course, it's been accelerated by COVID. So the Gartner report at the end of the COVID period said that probably about 80% of workplace classroom learning, you know, that stuff you referred to, the sage on the stage, that's not going to come back. Uh, it's either been replaced or will be replaced by online learning. Because we once you get, forget about all that emergency stuff we did on Zoom, actually the people who really know what they're doing can do high-end simulations as we do in the military. Mm -hmm. uh, you can do scenario-based training. You know, there are many different species of online learning. So that gets us to where knowledge management seems to have a bit of a rub in the mechanism of learning because not all universities even have that subject or the degree is not available or, you know, on and on and on. But the need for knowledge management training is there. The purpose for the intent of knowledge management in and of itself is to make things easier to to transfer and consume and produce all the way around to reduce friction and business decisions and, and all that. So 
this learning availability, does this give the rise of a new type of learning source, which is just AI Central? Hey, take a class at AI Central. Oh, very definitely. So what happened with knowledge management as we knew it? So in the, in the degree subject, so a, a number of colleges had AI degrees really that were called knowledge engineering. So my son has a degree in AI. He did that at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. Just two years ago, that was called knowledge engineering because it focused very much on how you handle semantic data and NLP, natural language processing, and so on. Those degree courses are normally now called data science courses or AI courses. So it's been subsumed under that. This goes back to my, my premise is that AI changes everything here in knowledge management. It changes the very nature of the subject. It's almost a, like a flip where knowledge is data for AI as opposed to a thing in itself. Uh, and this is what data science degrees have been delivering for a number, number of years now. But of course, AI has become so powerful, so relevant, and so applicable. I mean, the top 10 companies by market cap on in the globe are by and large AI companies, either in the US or China. If you ask Facebook, Tencent, BadEye, you know, Twitter, any of those companies, what they're fundamental technology is it's undoubtedly ai there's microsoft apple that's that's just the fact and this is irreversible of course we're not going back to the, any manual handling of anything here we're not going back to we're not throwing out our our cell phones and going back to rolodexes you know you know we have, we have this paradigm shift here towards not knowledge in itself but how knowledge is stored created managed delivered to humans. Another really interesting futuristic idea of this is that once a machine really understands human language, then you know it's in a position to acquire vast amounts of knowledge, more than any human being can. And in that position, once AI brings in reason and argument, then we are getting to the position where it really is better at us and many of the tasks that we do, such as management or decision-making, where it's already been used. Linear type statistical programming is already used in logistics, way beyond the ability of any manager to cope with the variables. And this is creeping into recruitment and almost every area of middle management. So you see that hollowing out in the middle of organizations because data and AI can replace many of those precision tasks. Well, in that futuristic world, then it becomes more poignant for the intrinsic pieces of knowledge that people retain and hold and don't share become the gold, right? Because then, yeah. then you're fighting that culture shift again be, because they don't want to share because they know they'll get put to pasture or they'll have to go get a new job or, or whatever. Where does that breakpoint change in a revolution of how we do things? Ten years ago, the user experience was a new concept. You know, how do we interface with content and information and make it better to easier to consume? And so with the idea of the um, brain inborn or the neural connection to technology, will we ever get to the point where we are just connected? So there's no more holding on to your berries of goodness that will keep you employed. It becomes a mesh network of biological and digital. So the two issues there, first on that not invented here thing, keeping knowledge hidden because it's, it's knowledge is power and therefore it keeps you in employment and so on. That's a busted flush now, I think, because uh, so much knowledge is available for free on the internet, especially in business processes and so on. If you really want to know something, you can find it pretty quickly. If you want a template document on something, you just have to pay people for it. You can find it in seconds if you really wanted to. So that's a busted flush. 
what really manages is very smart the very smart use of this technology so if you're involved like i've involved in a massive 150 million sterling deals that's about 200 million a deal in a company and we're dealing with lawyers and advisors but they're all using really smart tech and accessing databases to do due diligence you know and this is a very small number of people accessing huge amounts of very detailed knowledge to make a judgment on how much this company is worth and what its trajectory is in the market now you asked a really interesting question there though about where, the, where this is all going in terms of the future and we have some there are a couple of really fascinating things happening here around companies like Neuralink and Kernel. So this biology versus technology thing, I really would advise you to look at, anyone to look at an amazing video on YouTube, which is from Neuralink. And it's a monkey that's playing that old computer game, Pong. Do you remember that one? Bing, bing, bing. Right, right. So the, the monkey's playing Pong and it's getting a reward if it plays well of a banana milkshake through a tube. And it's got a joystick and it gets quite good at the game. You know, monkeys have quite good cognitive skills in that point. It gets really good at Pong. But it has an implant, a, new, uh, a neural implant, very thin fibers, much thinner than the human fear into its brain. So there's no bleeding or anything. It's quite, it's invasive, but non-invasive. And they're reading the data using AI. And so they unplug the joystick, but the monkey continues to play Pong as effectively as it was in the joystick. The monkey's still moving the joystick, but it's not plugged in. What they are doing is using the data directly from these fibers. And so the monkey is playing directly using an AI interpreted data from its brain playing the game. Yeah, yeah. Now, this is starting to happen now. Kernel is another company. They actually put light or lasers into your brain at various points and then look for what light comes back to identify brain patterns. There are people who are putting stents into a vessel in your brain so you can read data that way. But this is really interesting because we're, it not only reads data very effectively for the brain, and that's proven. Look at the video on YouTube. Just type in monkey and Neuralink. But imagine the Neuralink system also allows you to write back. Isn't that fascinating? Because So imagine being able to, initially they're looking at helping paraplegics and people who have limb loss and so on. And that's already there. There are hundreds of thousands of people with the Utah array who are already being helped with this type of technology. So it's not science fiction. But what is science fiction at the moment, but may become true, is using these techniques to help with mental health issues, such as depression. Now, imagine if we found a way of avoiding depression as a mental illness. Imagine the, how much suffering would be eliminated in our species at the stroke of uh, a piece of technology if that happened. You know, and let's not imagine that, you know, suffering is something deliberately put here by God uh, or that, you know, smallpox is some part of some great plan or whatever. Let's say, yeah. uh, let's, let's look right. for progress here. Imagine being able to learn Russian in a week as opposed right. to, you know, today, right today, there are probably hundreds of thousands of kids learning Spanish to get to college. And what will they learn at the end of it? We bien. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you know yeah. able, barely able to order a beer. Mas cerveza. Exactly. Yeah. So, and that's, the, you know, it's a tragic area of failure in education. Right. Because they don't really get a chance to learn the language unless you, you know, live in an area you where. You live in it. Right. Exactly. And, and that's how you really learn the language. Imagine being able to read knowledge back into the brain. And the enhancement that would give you so that the education system was telescoped, you could learn much faster. This is a bit science fiction-ish, I should, I should add. Well, I, I don't think it's much of a stretch. I don't think it's as science fiction as it was 40 years ago, for oh, no, sure. Far from it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we are on that trajectory, for sure. Yeah. So that just leads me to, where did the ethics come involved with this? Because now you're talking 
beyond consumer data, you're talking about biological being, your genetic structure is now accessible. On the ethical issues, I think it's important to take that word ethics seriously because a lot of people who commentate on ethics just look for the bad things, you know, and just want to stop everything. Ethics is the application of moral principles to a, a domain. So if we apply, you know, moral principles to this problem, you know, technology always has good and bad. So, you know, about one and a half million people die horrible, brutal deaths every year in car crashes, but we all have a car. <laughs> so and that's like having a major world war every year. Right. And yet we pay no attention at all to that. And, and that's not accounting the people who get seriously injured and lose limbs and whose lives are destroyed. You know, we, we, we live with the problem. And most technology has a downside. Some, there are very few pieces of technology that don't have some sort of downside to them. So it's a sort of utilitarian judgment we make. Now, when it comes to AI, there are a number of little pockets. You have to start to deal with these ethical issues one by one. And some of them are quite trivial. Like, it's only white guys in a room who produce this stuff. Therefore, it's all, you know, it's all rubbish. We should bin it. Well, actually, you know, I've been to Stanford. I've been to Silicon Valley. If you look at a programming team, it invariably has somebody from the Far East, a couple of Indian guys, you know. If you look at a pie chart of programmers worldwide, a huge chunk would be Chinese, Far East, uh, Indian, you know, that is far from being a white-only game. Right. The chief exec of Microsoft and Google are both Indian-born, Indian-trained, you know. So I think that idea is not a multicultural thing. Diversity-wise, as far as sex, it's heavy to males, yeah. right? I mean, and there's an issue where I think, to be frank, I think we're just being a bit naive. There, there's clearly a problem there, which starts in schools with education. I think we have a chance of uh, using technology to, because this is by and large parents and teachers. So this is a well researched area. What happens is that girls get signals very early on from two main sources, and that's their peer group, include parents in that, or they're a different peer group, and also teachers about what subjects they should be taking. So the pressure actually mm -hmm. comes from schools, mm -hmm. you know, about college degree choices and so on. Yeah. But there is a basic, you know, fundamental difference here. I've been in this game for 37 years. The ratio of programmers and teams hasn't changed one bit over that period. And that's because there, I think there are differences. Women tend to, uh, this is an unpopular view. If we look at Sweden, for example, which has absolute, you can think of no other country where equality of opportunity is more obvious and supported by law. And yet they have the highest proportion of women nurses of any country in Europe. Because when people are given the freedom of choice, they tend to go for jobs they like. There is still that implicit bias. And this is supported by the autism data. So it's about either between four to one to seven to one autism, male to female. So males tend to get, you know, much more, there are much more extreme uh, situations and autism is a complex I see. condition there. But that that's a, that's a sort of biological fact. Mm -hmm. That's not going to disappear. So you're always going to have that, male bias towards very systematic, you know, go into your bedroom for three years and learn how to program mm -hmm. and then enjoy that because you, you enjoy sitting in a cubicle on your own staring at a screen all day. I think, I don't think we're going to see a huge uh, shift in that ratio. Okay. Uh, you know, I think it's wholly utopian to expect that. Nevertheless, then another bias, of course, is the bias that's implicit in data. But again, you know, Daniel Kamen got his Nobel Prize for finding out that this brain that both of you and I are using now has full of biases. He also claimed they were uneducable, penultimate page of his book on thinking fast and slow. So it's very difficult to shift biases in human beings, but you can in AI work towards the steady improvements. AI is largely statistics, and statistics is all about the effort you make to eliminate error. 
you know, it takes in probability and it can. That's what the whole science is about. So AI is constantly looking at identifying error rates, problems, and eliminating them mathematically and statistically. So at least we have a chance in AI to eliminate bias and work towards that elimination, far greater than sending people on unconscious bias courses or whatever. You know, right. that's just a gigantic waste of money by and large. It's not going to have much of an effect. Mm-hmm. So there's a bias issue. And then there are the big ethical ethical issues around employment, of course. What happens if millions are made unemployed? I think that's unlikely. I mean, just before COVID, when we've got all this AI stuff and technology going on, we had almost full employment in the US and in Europe and the UK. So there, there aren't great signs that it's causing mass unemployment because there's always this working in AI and other jobs become available, you know. So I buy stuff from Amazon. And of course, some physical shops have to close down, but I have no end of delivery drivers who are now employed or people who work in Amazon warehouses and so on. Sure. You get that shift in displacement of job types and roles change, but overall, and we will be working less hours. That's generally true for the last hundred years. You know, we used to be working seven days a week or, or then Sundays became sacrosanct. Then we now have weekends. Now we're looking at four day weeks. Mm-hmm. So this sort of stuff's happening as well. So that's the employment front. But the big one is the existential threat. You know, that's the big ethical issue. Is this so dangerous that it might lead to the extinction of our very own species? And there are some sort of runaway dangers there, but I'm on the side that there's some serious thinkers in this area, people like Stuart Russell and so on. You know, it's serious AI people who've tackled this in very, very good books. There's a range of opinion here. Some are putting up warning flags. Others think, like Stephen Pinker and Daniel Dennett and so on, think, listen, we, we're in control here. We can just pull the plug. You know, this is a design problem. You know, when we're looking at engineers building bridges, we didn't have an AI ethical design group on building bridges, you know, <laughs> because we were just careful about how we build them. It's very much a design and regulation problem. Right. And so big groups like IEEE are looking at this. So I think that's manageable. So how do you build in empathy in the AI? Is it achievable? Well, I think this is a mistake. In a sense, you don't have to, I don't think, for many of the tasks we've talked about. And the reason is as follows. goes back to this competence without comprehension. If something is competent and does a good job, if I have a robot in a nursing home looking after my elderly parents and it does a good job because uh, I did a training program on this once. And of course, as we all, as we all do, our memories go, we forget the names of the nurses and doctors. And so you constantly, when you go into the room, you always have to say, hi, Donald, because, you know, they've forgotten your name. (laughs) Actually, these are the sort of skills that are very difficult to teach. And these workers are like $10 an hour, you know, it's, they don't get trained well, but imagine that we are already seeing this sort of technology getting into that environment and solving some of those problems. So I think we're and even looking at solving some of the early dementia and Alzheimer's problems. You know, we have AlphaFold that's now revolutionized the prediction of protein production, saving millions of hours in labs and in real research because it can predict how proteins fold. So I think we're looking at AI solving ethical problems, not necessarily by doing it the way humans do, but we as humans can make sure that they are competent to perform these tasks. I mean, an AI can beat you already at Texas Hold'em Poker, and it can do all the bluffing and so on, but it doesn't know anything about bluffing. You know, it just is it's executing mathematical code. So you can sort of mimic all those things using maths and AI without it having the feeling or consciousness of empathy. And I think that's what's going to be in place here. 
that's by and large what we're talking about here. We, we yeah. shouldn't over-anthropomorphize this technology, you know? Mm-hmm. It is what it is, and let's take it as far as it can, doing good things under our control. My last question, I'll have two more questions. One is, if you had an unlimited resource, what would be your best application and mission and vision to bring AI to any part of the world or industry or society? Well, there are two here. I, I spent quite a lot of time in Africa and places like Uganda and Rwanda and Namibia. You know, and, uh, I know that continent quite well. And uh, you know, I came from a working class background. Uh, you know, I know what poverty is. And this is why, you know, when you ask me about the sort of gender and race and all that sort of stuff, issue, I'm far more interested in the poor people, despite their race, wherever they are. You know, I'm an old fashioned sort of socialist in that respect. And I think two areas. One is education. It is absurd and morally bankrupt for us to expect that the model we have in the developed world, and let's say Europe and America, even China, of higher education is at all applicable in Africa, let's say. It's ridiculously expensive. It isn't working for us, never mind poor people in the world. So I think the dramatic reduction of cost in the delivery of education is a huge goal. It's going to be a gargantuan goal because nobody wants to do it. <laughs> None of the people in the developed world really want to help those poor people because they, they're putting the, that whole structure at risk. The second one is, I mentioned this earlier, but my mother was a nurse. My sister was a nurse, mental health nurse. And both are now dead, unfortunately. But I really hope that the technology helps in if not reducing, eliminating certain areas of mental health problems or suffering in human beings. And mental health is a hidden area of suffering. And imagine if we can do that. You know, really, imagine eliminating depression. Imagine just for a moment, quantifiably, getting rid of that form of suffering, how much good or how much advance we would make as human beings, never mind getting to Mars, you know, right. and that, all that bullshit. I, I think looking at solving some of these problems close to home would do us as a species no end of good. So education, mental health issues, this is why access to knowledge is so, so important. You know, knowledge wants to be free, so does education. Education wants to be free and should yeah. be free. But that means making it easy. Yeah cheap and far more effective well that sounds wonderful any effect on climate change would that be a you know in europe we have this ridiculous situation the eu we're not partly you know have just doubled their budget on this i think called the erasmus program which is basically flying kids all around europe to different universities you go are you mad 30 billion euros i'm saying what sort of world are we doing this so you know and in fact, education is doing, you know, academics fly all over the world to conferences to stand and read from a piece of paper at a podium. I've seen it endlessly. Uh, you know, I'm a professor at university. I've taught at Harvard and places. This is absurd. <laughs> I think if we're going to take climate change seriously, we have to use the technology. Look at us now. You are sitting in New York State and I'm sitting in England and we're doing this an amazing piece of technology for free. The product of this meeting and coming, to, we've never met each other before. I've really enjoyed this, but you can now distribute this, put it out for free on the internet, and millions of people can yes. see it if they want, right. if they're interested. Isn't that an amazing thing? Imagine making education like that. Well, the, the only key ingredient there to make that effective is motivation. So we've got a we've got a banquet yeah. hall of knowledge. We've got a banquet hall of options and things we could be doing, but... What's our motivation? Well, I think the carrot and the stick with the education piece, I'm with you on the education piece because the motivation of learning yeah. has to be there or it's useless. Well, so how do you motivate people to consume and partake? Well, 
the first thing you do don't do is charge them fifty thousand dollars a year, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and then and yeah. then put a great big sack of debt which lasts their whole exactly. life. I think there's a, an infrastructure issue here, and there's another amazing thing happening. And that's again, it's uh, Elon Musk thing called Starlink. So you got these thousands of satellites. That I've seen them launch. I've seen them pass over the top of my house. An amazing thing. So you have this network of low-level satellites that give internet access with no blind spots across the whole planet. This will be a wonderful thing because it gets into Africa and all these areas I'm talking about. It gives everybody cheap access to these services, like all these AI wonderful things that are happening. Now, motivation does happen. You know, it's not as if we're not, you know, learning theorists are quite good at motivation. It's their main, it's their main issue. Teachers don't really teach. Teachers are largely encouraging learners to learn. You know, you, you know as well as me, you know, you went, you do your college and your military stuff. You don't actually learn by sitting watching somebody doing something. You learn when you think about it yourself, go back into the quiet of your own room or get up and learn how to clean, clean a rifle yourself. You know, you have to do things or go back and really make cognitive effort to learn. So teachers are really about motivation. When you take the teachers away, you have to replace that. But, you know, I have two sons that they were twins, now 27 uh, they have no end of motivation. Believe me, uh, you know, I couldn't get them off computers. You know, they're both highly tech kids. One runs a tech company, one's got a degree in AI. I couldn't get them off the damn thing. Computers are highly motivating if you do it right. And uh, I think if we get this right, we will get this unique combination between personalized learning, keeping people in the zone, not taking them too far in adaptive learning, personalized learning. You know, classrooms are terrible places. They go too slow for some, too fast for others, and you hit a few in the middle, too many distractions. If you get this personalized learning gig going, mm -hmm. then you're treating everybody with respect and they're going at the right pace. You keep them motivating going, a little bit challenging, but not too much, and you keep them going through the subject. Mm -hmm. That's what really matters, intrinsic motivation. And we know a lot about that now. My man, I am excited to get started with all of that yeah. learning. Uh, last question is, what's knowledge management? Well, knowledge management is now not what it was, because knowledge management used to be the correct storage and retrieval, and most importantly, use and application of knowledge. There's a new kid on the block AI that I go back to my original phrase and would say, changes everything, because it mediates knowledge. It not only manages knowledge, it lies between us as a species and knowledge, it defines access to it. All the interfaces are defined by it, whether it's speech on my Alexa or Google Assistant or Siri, or whether it's through that little box on Google or video or whatever. It's all mediated by AI. More importantly, knowledge is now being, and this is, we've discussed this in detail now, is being created by AI. Isn't that weird? That's why this is a new era for knowledge management. Knowledge management used to be a human-only domain in terms of its creation. The new kid on the block is actually creating fresh knowledge, and that will open up all sorts of exciting opportunities for knowledge dissemination, making it cheaper, allowing us to use it with relative ease in education and in every other domain. So it's exciting times here. But the catalyst, the fulcrum here is AI. Well, thank you very much, Donald. It's been a thorough joy to speak with you today. It's the first time we've met, Edwin. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, you asked all the right questions for me. And, uh... <laughs> because You Need to Know is designed to bring people's experience and their knowledge forward to be shared.
I'm Edwin K. Morris, and I thank you for joining in to listen to another conversation brought to you as a public service of Pioneer Knowledge Services, a nonprofit tax exempt organization with a charitable knowledge management purpose. Find us online at pioneer ks.org and add your voice to the conversation on Facebook.